You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Philippians. Here's Nate. Well, here in Philippians chapter 4, Paul gives a wonderful exhortation, many wonderful exhortations in this fourth chapter. But the first verse begins with a wonderful exhortation, which in many ways is a synopsis statement, sort of a finishing uh, exhortation that's connected to the things that he has said previously. Where he says in verse one, he says, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You know, Paul has exhorted them in a lot of strong ways throughout the book of Philippians. And here he sort of wraps up these exhortations by describing it as standing firm in the Lord. You know, let me focus first on the in the Lord portion of that exhortation. Just as every spoke of a bicycle wheel is interconnected at the center, at the hub, so is every exhortation that we have in Philippians and that we have in the New Testament connected to Christ. It is standing firm in the Lord. He is the hub of it all. And we've seen that, of course, in the book of Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 27, Paul said, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So there's a manner of life, but it's directly connected to the gospel of Christ. He said in chapter 1, verse 27 as well, that we would by one mind strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. So there is this fight that we are in, but it is connected to the gospel message, connected to Christ. Of course, in Philippians 2, that famous passage where Paul is exhorting the Philippian church to be of one mind and, uh, you know, to have unity within them. He then, in attaching, uh, in expanding on that exhortation, tells them in chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe the humble a lowly servant-like mindset that Jesus himself possessed. He tells them in chapter 2, verse 12, to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And so it's not just a doing of good works. There is salvation that they had received in Christ that they would then work out and live. And so there's a connection to Jesus that is necessary in all of these things. Resisting chapter three, the Judaizers who would uh, be proclaiming a works-based salvation, you must be connected to Christ Jesus in order to overcome such thinking and logic. And so Paul tells them here in verse one to stand firm thus in the Lord. You know, in the face of all of that, make sure that you're holding on to Christ, that you're standing firm in Christ. Don't be swayed with various doctrines and things that would sidetrack you from the Lord himself and from his glorious gospel. And so Paul gives them this strong exhortation to stand firm thus in the Lord. And his exhortation is based on a few things. First of all, he says, therefore, my brothers, and 
In chapter 3, which had preceded this statement, he had talked to them of their citizenship in heaven. If you're really a citizen of heaven, if that's really your eternal home because you're in Christ, then stand firm in the Lord. And, and there was love involved in Paul's heart. He calls them my brothers and my lo loved and longed for brethren. And uh, he calls them his joy and his crown. He's thinking of his reward. He's saying, guys, stand fast in the Lord. Now, this exhortation is a military kind of exhortation, isn't it? You know, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, he said, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave and be strong. Or as my version puts it, act like men. And so there's a holding of our ground in Christ and standing fast in the Lord and really being serious and intentional about it. You know, it's, it's, if, if left to our own devices and just left to go the course and the flow of nature, we will not... Uh, be able to endure. There is an intentionality within the Christian life to pursue, you know, baptism, to reconcile things that need to be reconciled from your past, to consecrate yourself, to get into the word of God, to become a person who learns to pray, to publicly confess sin, to actually join a fellowship of believers, to engage in personal and corporate worship. We are to stand firm in the Lord, to really go for it in this Christian life. Now, in verse 2, Paul goes on in this chapter, and he, he continues a theme that he had touched on in chapter 2 concerning unity. He says in verse 2, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And one of the fascinating things about Christianity is that there is, of course, an emphasis on our own personal life and our personal walk before God. But there's also this understanding that when we are placed in Christ, we are immediately part of the family of God. We're placed into a larger assembly. And there's this interconnectivity that is working within the body of Christ. And when, when even one person within the body of Christ decides to go out of bounds and decides to live a life of sin, they are, in one of sense, crippling the entire body of Christ. And so we need each other and there needs to be a unity together. And here Paul, it's interestingly enough, by name mentions a couple of women who were at odds with one another. And he, it's fascinating enough that he'd even heard of this dissension. Perhaps Epaphroditus had shared this news with him, but Paul is a thousand miles away. And here we are 2000 years later reading of this dissension between these two women, Euodia and Syntyche. Now, Euodia means prosperous journey and Syntyche means pleasant acquaintance. And so uh, these women who <laughs> were obviously not being very pleasant or prosperous to each other were at odds with each other. Now, we don't know what their conflict was about. That doesn't seem to matter. Paul's exhortation is very simple. He says they need to agree in 
the Lord or to be of the same mind in the Lord. And so he, he's exhorting them, you guys need to work this thing out. You need to get on the same page. This division ought not be. You know, there's a little passage in Deuteronomy and also another statement of this in Leviticus where God is promising the people of Israel incredible victory uh, in their future when they would go into the promised land. And he says to them in Deuteronomy 32, 30, he said, one of you will chase a thousand and two will put 10,000 to flight. I love that because, you know, it's miraculous enough that one of them would defeat 1,000. But two of them, you would think, would then defeat 2,000. But he says, no, two of you will put 10,000 to flight. There's this multiplication of fruitfulness that comes when there is unity and when there is a strong team together. In Leviticus 26, verse 8, he says, Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And so, again, doing the simple math, you would think, well, if five can chase a hundred, then a hundred would be able to chase two thousand. But again, not so. There is a multiplication where he says you'll be able to chase ten thousand. It only accelerates when there is unity. When people are on the same page, when a church is in agreement, when a church is together, when the vision is common and shared, the fruitfulness and the productivity is absolutely amazing. And so Paul hears about this disunity between these two women, and he names them and calls them out in order to have it dealt with immediately. And he even says in verse three, I ask you also true companion, help these women, you know, uh, who have labored with me in the gospel with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He, he, he speaks to this true companion, which literally means yoke fellow. And, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, some think that this is actually a proper name uh, of someone that, whose name was, you know, Yoke Fellow. Uh, maybe this is Timothy being spoken of or Epaphroditus, maybe Lydia, uh, Luke, who maybe was uh, involved there in the church in Philippi or someone else. Or maybe it's just the church in general. He's encouraging them and saying, listen, help these women figure it out. Now, I love that here Paul speaks of these women who had labored with him in the gospel. And, you know, this is just a wonderful little insight into the way that Paul had done ministry, much like Christ had done ministry. Jesus, of course, had 12 male disciples, but his ministry team was much larger than those 12 men. And his ministry team included a wonderful group of women uh, serving on his team. And so, these women were serving the church in Philippi well, but they needed to reconcile to one another. Then he goes on in verse 4, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. There's just this theme of rejoicing in the book of Philippians. A double emphasis of it here, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He goes on you know, beyond simple rejoicing and says, listen, it's very important. It's an imperative that we would be a rejoicing people. And where are we rejoicing? We're not rejoicing in circumstances. He doesn't say rejoice in, 
your relationships always or rejoice in the fruitfulness of the ministry always. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. We are created to find satisfaction in him and in him alone. And so he tells them, listen, there's this wonderful possibility of rejoicing in the Lord. Verse five, he goes on and says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he's told them to stand firm. He's told them to be unified. He's told them to rejoice in the Lord always. And here he gives them a different kind of exhortation. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Don't be a wild kind of person. Don't be a, a person who isn't a clear thinker. Be reasonable. Have a, uh, you know, a thought process that is clear and good and grounded. But then he gives them this wonderful and very popular and famous exhortation concerning uh, prayer and anxiety. You know, anxiety is a great joy killer in our day and age. Uh, you know, it messes with our hopes and our fears and sometimes even manifests itself physically through headaches and ulcers and neck pains and, you know, even much worse. And we live at least in a time where many people pursue medication in order to calm their anxiety. And I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with medication, but it is, you know, at least worth noting that there are so many people that are turning to some form of medicine to calm their anxieties and calm their concerns and their fears. We live in a complex world that, you know, there are a lot of modern conveniences we wouldn't trade in for a dark age kind of lifestyle, but there's a complexity to life in this day and age that can lead to an anxiety in people's hearts. I mean, we're very conscious of the conflicts and wars and disasters throughout the world. There's a pressure financially upon us and and, uh, you know, relationally, usually there's some great strain that someone is enduring and going through. And so for the Christian, Paul says, listen, this is what we're to be. Do not be anxious about anything. You're not to be a worrier. We're to be a people who trust in the Lord, who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trust him. And all of these things will be added unto us. And so he says, first of all, don't worry. But how can you just go from a place of, okay, well, I don't want to be anxious. Paul gives us the cure for anxiety. He tells us to, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Just cry out to God. Prayer is the weapon that we have to calm and cure the anxiety that so easily creeps into our lives and can dominate us and take us over. He says, he says, cry out to God in prayer. And I love the way that he says to pray. He says, first of all, in everything. In other words, we're not to just simply pray over the big things, but give it all to the Lord, every concern, every worry in everything. And then he says, 
by prayer and supplication. Supplication is, you know, a, a, a part of prayer, but it speaks of an intensity in prayer. Don't let it be so casual, but cry out to the Lord. And then he speaks of thanksgiving. You know, one of the greatest ways to pull yourself out of depression is through thanksgiving. Time and time again in my own life, I have had to, in moments where I've grown weary and depressed, especially when there's a gap between my expectation and my experience. During those moments, I have to cry out to the Lord with thankfulness and just thank him for anything and everything I can, even if the only thing I can think of at that moment to be thankful for is simply the fact that I've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. So thanksgiving is a huge help when it comes to worry and anxiety and pressure. And when you make your requests, yes, we do offer requests to the Lord. We do ask. When this happens, he gives a promise. He says, the peace of God, verse 7, which passes all understanding. It's not something that is a human logic kind of thing. There's just this peace that settles upon our hearts. And that peace will sometimes lead us, sometimes guide us. Sometimes we'll have a peace about something and we'll know that we're to head in such and such a direction. But often it's just the calming of the mind and the vanquishing of our anxieties. And I would encourage you to cry out to the Lord. He can calm your heart. He can heal your worry and anxiety. Then Paul begins to really conclude his letter in verse 8 when he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You know, Paul understands that what we set our minds upon really shapes us in a radical way. And, you know, Paul isn't trying to say that we're to live a, a, an emotionless or joyless or entertainment-less life. But he is encouraging them. He says, listen, guys, focus on the things that are true, the real and the reliable things. You know, when anxiety fills my heart, one of the first things I need to do is believe the truth. And I found that my own mind will lie to me. There, there are lies embedded deep within my heart. And so, you know, focus on the truth in God's word, the truth as you, as you have received it from the word of God, what you know is real. And, uh, you know, so much of our worry is imaginary and w something we can't control or something that never happened. And so, you know, to focus on that which is true, that which is noble as well, the dignified and the, and the respectable things in life. And, you know, in our culture, I think everyone rushes to the gutter and rushes to that which is dirty and sensational and sensuous. But we are to focus on that which is noble. Watch out for what you, you are allowing into your eye gate and into your ear gate. Be on guard. And, and he says, you know, to focus on the things that are uh, lovely and pure and commendable and excellent. He says, you know, think about these things and practice these things. 
Paul then concludes this letter with really what he had set out to do with the book of Philippians, this little letter. It was simply to thank the Philippian church for their great generosity. When they had sent Epaphroditus to him, they had sent along some financial provision, and Paul wanted to thank them for that provision. And so he he concludes his letter with just gratitude for their support financially of him and his ministry, and he lets them in on just what it meant to him that they were so behind him. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. This was their, you know, financial care. They had continued to be concerned for him. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, as Paul gives this wonderful word of thankfulness to the Philippian church and, and thanks them for reviving their concern for him and, uh, you know, blessing him financially. And, you know, he says in verse 10, I know that you had no opportunity before, but once you had an opportunity, you jumped right in and you took care of me. In the middle of all of this, in verse 11, 12, and 13, he gives this wonderful secret of life. And he says it as a secret. In verse 11, he says, for I have learned. This was a, in other words, a mystery that uh, Paul had discovered, something that he had learned. Uh, he, he, he says, I've learned the secret. And in verse 12, I've learned the secret. And this speaks of, you know, the mystery religions would use this phrase, uh, the, the secret of. And Paul is saying, listen, there's this thing that I've learned, this secret that I have discovered. And the secret was so beautiful. It was a secret of contentment, just being at peace. You know, my dictionary describes content, contentment or content, being content as a state of peaceful happiness. And, you know, that sounds so good. The, 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 uh, the, the thesaurus says, satisfied, pleased, gratified, fulfilled, happy, cheerful, glad, unworried, tranquil. And, you know, the Greek meaning of this word is to be self-sufficient. And, you know, I don't think Paul was self-sufficient. I think he was Christ-sufficient. Jesus was everything that he needed. But he had learned this. He, he wasn't born this way. He wasn't just a man with a content temperament. He had learned contentment beyond his circumstances. He said, listen, guys, I, I've learned uh, in whatever situation I'm in to be content. You know, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And I know how to face hunger. And I know how to face need. I know how to be full. I know how to have abundance. And I think that this lesson of contentment is so necessary for this current age and generation. Some of us would say things like, well, I know how to abound. And I am sure I've learned the lesson of, you know, experiencing plenty. I'm pretty sure I could do that. But so often we fail at even that. 
you know, we get some abundance or prosperity. And what do we want? We want more. We're not content with the abundance that we have received. And so we get ourselves in all kinds of indebtedness and uh, which introduces all kinds of stress into our lives. Paul just said, listen, I know how to say enough is enough. And whatever the Lord gives to me, whatever comes from his hand, I will receive. And so much so, this escape, this uh, lesson was learned by him so much so that he was able to say in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, for Paul, he looked at it and said, listen, I know how to endure uh, abundance and I know how to endure times of leanness because I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I think many of this, us love to quote Philippians 4.13 out of its context. And of course, it has a larger, broader application that, you know, the things in front of us by the power of Christ, we're able to, to do them and to meet the things that the Lord has asked us to do. Uh, we can be an excellent husband or, or father or spouse or whatever it might be through the power of Christ. But the reality of what Paul is saying specifically and primarily is, I can, by the power of Christ, be content with what I have. I don't have to strive for more. Jesus is enough. You know, the little line from Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. To be a person that lacks a ever-driving, insatiable want within them. Paul says, I am that man. Jesus is my shepherd. I am content and I can live this life through him who strengthens me. Now he goes on and in verse 14 says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So Paul was content in his circumstances, but he also wanted to commend them for doing the right thing. He wanted to commend them for their generosity and commend them for their gifts. So he was content, but he knew that they had done a good thing. And he, he recounts for them. He says, listen, when I was down in Thessalonica, you took care of me. You, you entered into partnership with me. You took care of my needs at once and again down there in Thessalonica. And so just a beautiful way that Paul looked upon the gift and the generosity of the Philippian church. He says, we were partners together. And oh, to be able to partake of some of Paul the Apostle's fruit and be a partner with him. And there's that story in the Old Testament in the life of David where some stayed behind and guarded the stuff and some went out to battle and they split the proceeds together. You know, some are on the front lines like Paul and some of us as givers are funding and supporting the front line, so to speak, work of the ministry. Paul then said to them in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. It wasn't that he wanted wealth for himself, but fruitfulness. He wanted to be able to continue to focus on that which God had called him to. He says, I have received full payment and more. 
And I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. When you give to your church, when you give generously to ministry, it is actually a sacrifice to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This was a promise of God's provision for this generous and giving people. Too often we want to claim the supply of God without the open-handed nature of the Philippian church. Be open-handed, be generous, and God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And Paul closes with some simple greetings by saying in verse 21, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so concludes another epistle from Paul with a word on the grace of God. And may his grace be with you. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.